It's good to be together, Bethel Church. I love getting to open God's Word with you. We have some ushers who are coming down the aisle. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, I would love for you to have one. If you want to follow along on your electronic device, that's great too. We're in Hebrews chapter 9, and uh, we're going to we're going to take a, a little bit of a deep dive into a chapter that probably many of you have not spent much time in. Uh, before this week, I had not spent adequate time in it, but this week I got curious and uh, spent more time there, and I'm excited to share with you some of the things I've learned. Just out of curiosity, how many of you will make a New Year's resolution this year by a show of hands? All right, all 50 of us, we're going to have a great New Year. Um, one of the things I know about a lot of us who attend church is that we make resolutions about reading the scriptures. And, uh, and we, we want to increase our Bible reading. And I just want to encourage you, you know, you can, uh, you can certainly do that. And, and those habits are wonderful to form. And I was reading even this week, trying to, to get my uh, excitement back up about, you know, can I, can I push through, you know, a, a big section again? And it's really quite amazing when you break it down that if you were to read the Bible 30 minutes a day, five days a week, you would read it two times all the way through in an entire year. And so it is accessible to you. I want to encourage you. The scriptures are accessible to you. And one of the things you might think about this year is just cultivating a sense of curiosity about the scriptures. And part of what I hope to do in today's message is to help whet that appetite for curiosity. That's what happened to me. In reading this story in Luke chapter 1 of the birth of Jesus Christ, I became curious about this guy named Zechariah. You might remember Zechariah was in the, the temple and he was serving the Lord as a priest. And while he was serving the Lord during the time when, when he was responsible for caring for the incense that burned before the Lord, representing the prayers of the people, he saw an angel and the angel appeared to him and said, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And Zechariah knew better because he, like Abraham and Sarah before him, were way past having babies. And in a moment of a lack of faith, the angel pronounced a judgment on him that said, you won't be able to speak until that son is born, and when he is born, you'll name him John, and John will be the one that prepares the way for Jesus. Well, that got me curious, because I wanted to know, what was it like to be a Zechariah? What was it like to serve in the temple of the house of God as a Levite or a priest? There were 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, and they each had their own role, and the Levites of the lineage of Aaron had a special role of serving in the in in the temple and before that in the tabernacle. And I wanna take you to Hebrews chapter nine so that you can get a picture of how the writers of Hebrews uh, perceived the tabernacle because I think what it's gonna do is it's gonna help us see that what Christ has done is so much better than anything that came before. Christ is better. Hebrews chapter nine, if you are borrowing one of the Bibles we handed out, it's on page 1037, and I want to encourage you to follow along with the text, but for some of you, uh, you're, you learn better by listening, and so I'd like to have a slide shown of what the tabernacle looks like. We're going to leave this up for a while, so you don't, you don't have to worry about capturing this thought now. Maybe you want to follow along in the Bible, but, but have this in mind as you're reading with me. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, and this was called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the golden-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the Covenant. 
Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Verse six, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry, thinks Zechariah. But only the high priest, which entered into the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by the way that into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Verse 15. Let me back up for just a minute. When God established relationship with his people through Abraham and said, I'm gonna call a people out and I'm gonna bless them that they might be a blessing to others, he, he organized a, a, a lineage of people that were to be his people. And then of the people of Abraham, he called out the people and, and he, he led them. And he led them under the leader Moses out of Egypt into a promised land. And in their journey to the promised land, he told them very specifically how to build the, the tabernacle, the place where he would meet with them in his presence. And they were guided by a, a pillar of fire by now and by a cloud of smoke during the day. And these priests were set aside to worship their holy God. They were to be set apart, not like the people of, of the lands around them. And he gave them laws and rules and he taught them to trust him. And the people were imperfect, much like us. But there were certain things that they were supposed to do on a regularly occurring thing that was to set them up for something that was even greater to come. In verses one through five, we hear of these things which had been put in the tabernacle, this first place of worship. If we can keep that slide up, I want you to be able to see some of these things. These were all external things that eventually would point us to the person of Jesus. You see, not just anyone was allowed into this space. Only the people who were set apart by God to lead the worship were allowed in this space, and they had to go through the entrance curtain. And then they would bring their sacrifice and they would be led by the priestly class and there would be an altar where the animal was sacrificed and a table and different things. And then only the priests were allowed into the next place. And then in that next place, the most holy of holies, only one priest who was chosen once a year, who had purified himself according to the law, was allowed to go into that, into that place and make a sacrifice to God. And all of these external things were designed to point us to Jesus according to Hebrews chapter nine. The lampstand, as you read in the New Testament, you start to see how the lampstand became a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ himself, who is the light of the world. There was a table in there with sacred bread that was refreshed every week 
to remind them of their need for the bread of Christ himself, that he would be their sustenance and that they could commune with him. This gold-covered Ark of the Covenant inside the Holies of Holies represented to them the very presence of God. And friends, no one except one time a year and if only chosen was allowed to be in the very presence of God because God was so holy. God is holy. And in the Hebrew, we learned that that, level, that word has a sense of like weightiness to it. God is holy and that he is set apart. He is not like us. He is different from us. God is holy in the sense that he can have no sin in his presence. And so the gold-covered ark in this holy of holies was a place that was designed to teach the people, you cannot be in my presence because of the sin that exists in your life. Inside the ark was the manna from the time when they traveled in the desert. Jesus would later say in John chapter six, I am the bread of life. He, he becomes so much more than this manna that sustained them each day through the journey. He sustains us spiritually. Aaron's staff that had budded becomes a representation of Christ, this branch that was chosen above all others because he alone is life-giving. And the stone tablets of the covenant, well, these represent the holy standards of God. And there above all of it were the cherubim of the glory, these angels that were overshadowing this atonement cover. And what we learn is that this old system in Hebrews chapter nine was inadequate because it represented to the people of God their limited access to God. You don't get to come into this place. You don't even get to come in unless you have a sacrifice. And then, unless you're of a certain um, tribe, do you get to go in further? And then you only get to go in one time, once per year. God is holy and God is other. Throughout the old covenant, there was no direct access to God. Pastor Kent Hughes says of these verses, average Joes, like most of us, were several ecclesiastical layers removed from access to God's presence, and their conscience never rested easy. You see, there were regular things written throughout the book of the Leviticus and the book of the laws that they had to do regularly that reminded them that they were not holy. They were not like God. And apart from the sacrifices that were made, their sin kept them from the presence of God. But guys like Zechariah, they, they worked in a place like this. And they spent time every day around the sacrifices of the people of God. Once a year, according to Leviticus 16, on the day of atonement, during a great celebration, the high priest that year would prepare himself according to the text, and there was a washing ceremony he did. And there was a special clothes he wore, and there were special sprinklings of blood that were poured on him because the text tells us that without blood there is no forgiveness of sin, and so he's seeking the forgiveness of God by being sprinkled on. And according to Leviticus 16, a bull was brought, and the bull was sacrificed, and that sacrifice was placed in the Holy of Holies to represent before God the, the, um, the sins of the people. Two goats were brought before, and lots were cast, and one goat was slaughtered there in the place, and he was sacrificed. Another goat was let free. But before he was let free, the priest would lay his hands on the goat, and he would confess the sins of the people, and that goat would be sent out. Friends, sin is serious business. 
and the purification of God's people required the shedding of blood. We see in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, that this, this is a foreshadowing. It's an illustration, verse 9. And these are matters of, of food and drink and these ceremonial washings. They were there until a new order should come. Verse 11 and 12 tell us that when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with human hands. You see, when Jesus Christ came, just as we've sung, he became our intercessor, our heavenly intercessor. Up to this point in the book of Hebrews, this is what's been said of Jesus. It said that he himself suffered when he was tempted, and so he's able to help those who suffer also. In chapter four, it says we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. He writes in Hebrews chapter four, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Friends, this was a new concept. That those who were not a part of the priestly class, that those who had not been chosen, that that, that there, is a, there is a sacrifice that's been given that's inviting us into the very presence of God. And in the, between those two spaces, the holy and the holy of holies, there was a curtain. And that curtain was torn at the death of Jesus. Letting the people know that your access to God is now through Jesus himself. Hebrews 7 says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, Jesus is better than anything the old system had to offer. He secured for us an eternal redemption. Notice in verse 12 that this is for our redemption. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The theologian from the 1600s, John Owens, reminds the reader that all redemption assumes a state of slavery and that the aim of redemption is to deliver people from their bondage. Whether you knew this or not coming in here today, what you will know and, and learn as you read the scripture is that all of us are in bondage to sin. And apart from the redeeming work of Jesus, we become slaves to sin by nature and by choice. Paul will say in the book of Romans that, that, that maybe for the first time in coming to Christ, we can say no to sin and yes to the Spirit of God when we trust Christ for his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. Apart from Christ, you are a slave in bondage to sin. But Jesus, verse 12, has secured, he has obtained, he has accomplished the action of gaining for us our redemption. He alone is our salvation, and he alone is the redeeming one who redeems us from the bondage of sin. Verse 13 and 14, look here at this, this text about the, um, the ceremonial cleanliness here. There was a practice that the blood of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean will be made clean when they go through this ceremony. And the writer says in verse 14, how much more the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. And not just so that we can be cleansed, but so that we can be cleansed to serve the living God. Notice in verse 14, how all three persons of the Trinity take a part in our redemption. 
Paul will write of this reality in Ephesians that in him, this is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and it's all based on the accordingly riches of his grace. Friends, Jesus has loved us so much that he came into this world and gave himself up as a sacrifice for your sin and mine. And the old covenant points us to a future reality that was realized in the person and work of Jesus. And this Jesus, he's established a new covenant. All of the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ. And this new covenant is made available to you. And in this new covenant, there is a deep and glorious forgiveness available to anyone who will believe. As we read these scriptures and as we study this, we realize that there is nothing we can do to add to what Jesus has already done. We who are guilty in receiving what Christ has done, our guilt is atoned for. Our guilt is paid for. And in Christ, we have access to God the Father through all eternity. These first few verses show us that the external and temporary regulation of the Old Covenant point us to Jesus. But this old system, it was inadequate because it represented limited access to God and it had limited result. All the time, they had to keep coming back. And by faith, they came back. But by faith, they hoped for a greater sacrifice who was to come, who was the Messiah that had been promised. And when Jesus came as the high priest, verses 11 through 14, he secured for us an eternal redemption. And in him, our conscience is cleaned and made ready for serving the risen Lord. Friends, this is good news. And it's a curious thing. I, can, I would wager that you didn't plan on December 31st coming in here and talking about the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of lambs, and the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. But I want to encourage you to get curious about the text. Because when you get curious about the text, you see these beautiful realities of what Christ has done and how he's so much better than anything else you could give your life to. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, and those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is enforced only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll in all the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, but only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way a high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. 
but he has appeared once for all for the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Brothers and sisters, family and friends, Jesus has instituted a new covenant. And I want to encourage you to appreciate what Jesus has done by following the Lord faithfully. Look at verse 15. The text tells us that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Now when I think of mediator, I think of our modern context that it stands as two people who work a compromise between two opposing parties. But here, the term describes this function as the one who is used by God to enact a new covenant, which establishes a new relationship between God and his people entirely on God's terms. It's much like the covenant of Abraham. It's all about what God is doing. And at the end of verse 15, we see that the purpose of this was that these people who participate in the new covenant will be set free from the sins that were committed under the first covenant. We know that believers were saved under the old covenant through their obedient faith in God. It was demonstrated by their sacrifices as they humbly acknowledged that sin required death and as they placed their souls under the mercy of God. Salvation has never been about what one works for. It's always been about what one receives in what God has already worked. And those of us who are new covenant believers are beneficiaries of the proactive power of Christ's death says Kent Hughes, for he has paid for our sins, and when he gave us the grace to believe, he activated the saving power in our lives, paying for our sins, past, present, and future. The text is clear that in Christ there is a new covenant promise that you can be set free from the sins that you commit. And then he illustrates it here with a will. Now, now this is interesting. I'm not gonna ask you to raise hands, but I know a number of friends had loved ones passed last year. And it's hard as we look into the new year because we face a new year without our loved ones. And some of those loved ones left behind gifts for those in their will. I want you to have that image in your mind because that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, until that person dies, you don't receive the benefits of his death. So, So my kids know that mom and dad have a plan. And we've worked with an attorney and we've written out a will and there are certain benefits that they'll receive if, if we die uh, within a certain range of time. But as long as we don't, they don't get any of those benefits. The writer of Hebrews knows that reality and he's sharing that here and he's saying, in Christ, you are the beneficiaries of his death. You remember when Jesus at the Last Supper said, this is my cup, which is a a, a covenant for you. Take this and drink it of me. As he's doing that, he's indicating that in his death, burial, and resurrection, there will be benefits for you that are beyond anything anyone on this earth could ever offer you. Pastor Kent Hughes said, Jesus died leaving us the greatest inheritance ever. But he didn't just die, he rose again. And according to the text, he lives as a mediator for us even today. Sin is serious, and the Bible takes sin seriously. 
And we see here in the text that the price of forgiveness, I'm sorry, the price of sin is death. And that there is no forgiveness apart from the shedding of blood. In verses 19 through 22, maybe you noticed all these words here where it talks about the blood of calves and the blood of the covenant and the blood and the blood and the blood. History tells us that during the time of the Passover, there was actually a sacrificial plumbing system erected. Can you put that slide up? That that allowed the blood of the animals being sacrificed to flow down into the Kidron Valley. For the earliest reader, it would have been normal for them to see this bloody reality of death. It's a sobering thought But the echo of the scriptures is that sin brings death. In Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were told they would die. And they didn't die physically, but something spiritually died within them. And death entered into the world through one man. And so too life enters into the world through the man Jesus. Friends, sin is serious. In Leviticus chapter 17 of the law, it says, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls for it is blood that makes atonement by the life. Again, we hear this echo of Hebrews chapter nine that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. One commentator wrote, The devout worshiper of the old covenant came with a definite awareness, first, that sin requires death, second, that such a sacrifice required a spirit of repentance, third, that he was pleading the mercy of God, and fourth, in some cases, that a great sin bearer was coming. Under the old covenant, their only hope was to plead the mercy of God. Friends, that hasn't changed in the new covenant. Our only hope is to plead the mercy of God. But what we know and what they looked forward to is that Jesus has come as the greater sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice ended this mind-numbing repetition of the old system. On their own, we had one destiny as humanity. It was death and then judgment. But Christ's sacrificial death broke that bondage so that those who repent can find forgiveness and salvation. Jesus comprehended what he did and he willingly sacrificed himself, this perfect God-man. He set himself to atone for our sins. He's a superior savior, he's a superior priest and he invites you to trust in him. And in this new covenant, we see, in fact, that Jesus is better. Go back to verses 23 to 28 as we start to wrap up here. In verse 23, we read that it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, that is, the blood of the animals. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In Jesus... There is a better purity. His sacrifice was once for all, for all who will believe. In verse 24, 
Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was simply a copy. No, he entered into heaven itself and now he appears for us in God's presence. In Jesus, we find a better lawyer. Throughout the book of Hebrews, there's this reference back to the priest who would represent the people of God through that sacrificial system. How much better the representative who is Jesus himself before the heavenly father. Hebrews chapter seven says he always lives to intercede for us. Paul will write in Romans chapter eight, who is the one who condemns us? It's Christ Jesus who died. And more than that, he was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God and he is right now interceding for us. Friends, the next time your conscience or this world accuses you of guilt, if you're guilty, you're guilty. We're all guilty. But in Christ, your guilt has been paid for. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. Verses 25 and 26, he entered into heaven. Similar to that of the high priest who enters the most holy place, but he didn't do that time and time and time again. No, he did it once. And we see in this a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53. If you're taking notes, go back and read that sometime. In Isaiah 53, it says that Jesus bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Verses 27 to 28, and here's where we'll land and end our time together. Just as the people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. I was visiting with a person uh, just before Christmas and he was telling me how uh, he had this sense like he was reincarnated. And there are these ideas out there, friends. These ideas exist that maybe I've come back a different way or maybe I'll come back a different way. Let, let me invite you to Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27. All of us are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. There's no reincarnation here. If you haven't prepared a will, may I encourage you to make that one of your resolutions in 2024? Because when you are prepared to die, you are prepared to live. And when you have prepared in your heart the reality that all of us will die and in face the judgment seat of Christ, what risk is there but the risk of simply serving Jesus, this Jesus who was the once for all sacrifice, this Jesus who will appear a second time. And when he comes again, we will inherit the eternal inheritance of which we are heirs because of what Christ has done. Here at Bethel Church, we believe that Jesus Christ as our representative and substitute shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only grounds for salvation. Let me say that again. His atoning death and his victorious resurrection constitute the only grounds for salvation. Friends, we live in a time where a lot of people don't feel a lot of guilt anymore. Now, some of us feel guilty for things we shouldn't feel guilty about, okay? <laughs> and God bless the counselors that help us process that stuff and the friends who point us back to the truth. But we live in a time 
where a lot of people don't feel guilty for things they should feel guilty for. We know from the scriptures that guilt is a moral culpability that alienates us from God and brings us under his decreed penalty and eternal punishment in the lake of fire for all eternity. That's the truth. But in Christ, you do not have to stay guilty. I would encourage you, if you don't have a a favorite website to check on when you're reading the scriptures or a favorite study Bible or or a good commentary to, to, to reach out to someone you know who loves the scriptures and gets curious with you and find some good resources. One of my favorites is Bible.org. I love reading their, their write-ups on these things and, and they pointed me back to the 1700s and a hymn by William Cowper, a hymn that my grandparents used to sing and a hymn that I'm sure we've sung here. And here are the words. It says, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's blame, veins And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Friends, you don't have to live with your guilt anymore. You don't have to try to make yourself clean. I think for some of us, as we follow Jesus, our consciences can get seared by the realities of this world. But in Christ, we can have a new conscience and we can be made clean once again. I want to encourage you as you face the new year to face the new year knowing that Jesus, in Jesus, you can have better. It's available to you. Because of his death, burial, and resurrection, the will has been written and the will is being executed. You're all invited to the party. You simply have to die to yourself and live for him. To give up on the old system. Friends, I don't see a lot of bulls being sacrificed. I don't see a lot of lambs being sacrificed. We don't do that kind of stuff. But a lot of us are trying to add to what Christ did. And I want to challenge you to stop and to receive what Christ has done. Turn to him. Follow him. Because he is better. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your holy word which teaches us about who you are. You've revealed yourself through creation. You've revealed yourself through Jesus. You've revealed yourself through your word. And so God, thank you that we can become curious and we can learn more about the reality of our reality. Thank you, God, as we think about sin, it sobers us and reminds us of our need, our desperate need for a savior. Thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In him, we can have forgiveness of our sins. God, I imagine there's somebody here that walked in the room that's just feeling the weight of this world weighing on them. Lord, maybe it's not even their sin, but the sin of another person that weighs so heavy on them. Lord, would you set them free today? Would you help them cling to you with a faith in what Jesus has done and with a secure hope that Christ is returning again? And when he does, Lord, it's not just our benefits we receive now, but it's benefits for all eternity. Lord, help us to live as your children. 
as those who have received. God, help us to give generously to those around us this hope that we have in Christ. Amen.